back to another episode of Public Problems. Today, uh, once again, I'm with a few members of the Bush School of Government and Public Service, and these students have done uh, an excellent job covering a research project this semester that they're going to share with you. But before we dive into that topic, uh, you're going to hear from multiple voices, so I'm going to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. So team, if you would, please introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Michael McGough. I'm Morgan Seacat. I'm JC Jones. I'm Austin Reed. I'm Blaine Council. Excellent. So let me start uh, by saying thank you um, so much for the report and for the time and effort you put into it, and uh, also for having this conversation with me and letting me uh, share it broadly. So thanks for that. Um, your topic and the title of your report is Urban Sustainability Combating Rising Populations in U.S. Cities. So um, what you were able to kind of pick any topic that you would like. So what brought this particular topic to the forefront and uh, why did you choose it? Yeah, so we picked this topic. I think it was primarily, this is a, I mean, the world population is exploding. Uh, and then inside the United States, particularly a lot more people are moving towards cities and away from rural communities. Uh, and so from this, there's going to be consequences and there's so many different factors that go into making sure that cities need to be managed properly to where this great migration into cities isn't going to have extreme consequences for people beyond the cities as well. And so we thought it's interesting how there's economic, environmental, and social aspects to the overall idea of sustainably developing your city mm -hmm. and managing your population. So I thought, um, that's why we chose this project. Yeah, I think this is uh, my understanding of the numbers, and I'm sure we'll go over them uh, as part of your report, but that urbanization is, is still kind of very much in the midst of uh, growing, and more and more of the world's population is moving towards cities. And as, uh, as that happens, it creates new and different challenges for, for the populations in those cities, but also uh, particularly for uh, governance. And one of the first things your group touched on in your report is the different ways in which throughout history uh, governments have tried to deal with some of these, um, you, know, you know, the word we use for them is negative externalities that happen as a result of some of this growth in urban areas. So tell me a little bit about the different uh, strategies that governments have used throughout history and what this looks like. And then let's talk about uh, how this... Um, urbanization hasn't really stopped and what the numbers look like today. So tell me a little bit about how government has tried to deal with these negative ex externalities as cities have been growing throughout the Industrial Revolution into modern times. Okay, yeah, so I guess I could start off and just talk about the, the government side and also you can talk about the trends and growth, but um, so there's a Clean Air Act in 1970 that was, most of this legislation has been environmentally based. Uh, and from that, that will improve social networks uh, and then help with the economy by creating more jobs and not destroying communities. So and the Clean Air Act in 1970 was uh, passed into law, and that created this ex uh, vast set of ambient air quality standards for uh, just the United States overall. And then in particular regions, like for cities, they have different standards. And from this, they just want to make sure that the air that people are breathing isn't going to be as toxic or uh, contaminated. So it improves the quality of life, just makes it safer for people to um, live around the city. 
And so one of the big pieces about the Clean Air Act is that it talks about making these companies, primarily like pollution generating facilities, invest in the best available technology. And so it's pretty remarkable is that this policy from being in the 1970s, it requires people to really, really invest in some really expensive technology uh, to cut down on their emissions and really capture the emissions before they uh, go off into the atmosphere. Uh, so that's the Clean Air Act. And then we also touched a little bit about the Clean Water Act of 1972. Um, and so this was a really, really comprehensive policy that was regulating the discharge of chemicals and, and waste into water across the United States. And so the goal was to make waters more navigable and swimmable uh, and overall just safe and enjoyable for uh, general Americans. But uh, what is really important about this policy, I think, is that it created this large bond package that was able to invest in sewer treatment plants, water facilities, um, and just make it to where people's waste and sewage was being managed in a healthier, more sustainable way than just flowing into a stream or uh, flowing underground without pipes or proper ways of releasing gases. So and as that, was in 1970, that was in 1972, and... Uh, the expect, expected time for all of that infrastructure to last was roughly 50 years. And so you do the math, I mean, that's coming up about now-ish. So I think we should expect the next, hopefully the next few years, that we'll see some more legislation that's attacking uh, degrading infrastructure. I don't know if this is a core piece of your report, but do you, were these acts fairly successful in cleaning, you know, keeping air quality reasonable in American cities and keeping water clean in uh, American cities. Is that something that you looked at in terms of the policies that have been done in the past? I mean, were these helpful in cleaning up the cities? Uh, so we didn't touch overall on the, if they were like better versus other policies. I think when most people think of environmental laws, they think of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And that's just because they have been so successful in cleaning up air and then cleaning up water. So we didn't touch into like the technical uh, like actual quality of air versus or quality of water over time, but these these acts have been successful. Yeah, I know you can see. I've seen pictures from you know Chicago or New York back before these acts were passed, and you can just see the smog everywhere. And that's not something that uh, in general we associate with those cities today. So just kind of on anecdotal looking at them, at least the air seems to have cleaned up uh, in some of the major cities and uh, along, along with the water, although there are some notable exceptions, I think, throughout the U.S. on clean water. Um, so um, how, what is the trend to in, increasing growth in urban areas compared to, say, the 70s when these acts were, um, were passed? Is, are, I mean, my understanding is that cities are still growing. Is that the case? And, and um, if so... Kind of what's the rate look like? Yeah, so, you know, urbanization obviously isn't a new trend for the United States. Um, you know, been very prevalent at times, but it's sort of slowed down today. Um, but today it is still hitting unprecedented levels in that, uh, you know, more and more people are still continuing to move to cities. Uh, North America is actually the most urbanized area on the planet right now. 81% um, of the population lives in urban areas, and by 2050, that's supposed to hit 89%. Uh, so... And it's important to note that the Census Bureau, they recognize three different classifications of areas. Do you have urban areas, urban clusters, and rural, rural areas? 
mm-hmm. um, urban areas uh, with 50,000 or more people, uh, urban clusters or concentrated areas uh, between 2,500 and 50,000 people. And of course, anywhere that isn't a rural, I mean, an urban area or an urban cluster is a rural area. So um, the latest statistic from the Census Bureau is uh, that there is currently 3,573 unique urban areas. Um, wow. And while not all of these are necessarily growing, some are even losing population, the ones that are growing are most often growing very quickly and uh, obviously outgrowing infrastructure and things of that nature. Um, some of the fastest growing urban areas in the country include Boise, Idaho, they're at number one, um, Seattle, Washington, Dallas, Texas, Orlando, and Fort Worth. Um, a lot of the fastest growing cities on the list are from Florida and Texas. There's also a few from the Carolinas and the Pacific, the Pacific Northwest. So this comes right home for those of us in Texas, right? I mean, this is something that there's several uh, fast growing. I mean, Dallas and Fort Worth are two, right? And Austin is sort of noted just among Texans as growing quickly and has grown quickly, um, as well as Houston. So this is one that comes right home to those of us living in Texas. Yeah, and we'll later touch on how College Station, even in of itself, is one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas. So one of the things you note in this uh, section report that I thought was interesting, uh, as someone from Georgia, um, you you have this table in there that highlights the top ten densest cities compared to the sprawl uh, sprawling cities, and my guess is that this uh, we'll see that this presents kind of different types of challenges for these cities. Cities that are really compact probably have different challenges from those that are really sprawled out. I imagine. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, some of the focal points of urbanization today in the country are um, urban sprawl and suburbanization. And these two kind of tie into each other. Um, you know, you have some cities that are very dense, uh, you know, um, like New York, for example, I think they're number one. And then you have some that are continuing to sprawl. And sprawl actually has negative correlations um, between health, um, you know, the social aspect of a city, um, things like that. And, you know, the reason for urban sprawl um, and suburbanization, you know, they include, um, you know, things like the further you get away from the center of the city, there's lower cost of living, better infrastructure, lower taxes. And, uh, you know, people want to avoid the perceived negative, um, uh, you know, the downsides of central city living like pollution, crime, noise, things of that nature. Um, so that's certainly one of the biggest trends in urbanization today. Yeah, and so you hit on a few of these, but what are some of the other consequences of continued urban population growth? Uh, yeah, I guess so to talk about some of like the economic consequences, I think maybe people don't focus on these as much. They primarily think of the environmental consequences. Uh, but, I mean, you move more people into a city, uh, there's going to be less housing. And so rent's going to go up, just the cost of buying a house or a flat or whatever is going to go up a lot more. Uh, so it definitely prices people out of a market, and from that, cities are seeing problems with homelessness, um, and so that's less people that you, that are able to sustain themselves and that are costing government more because the government has to help them, um, or in many cases, not help them. Uh, but so in 2014 and 2016, the 53 largest American metro areas accounted for 72% of economic growth and 70% of jobs. Um, and then small cities and rural areas in the United States saw an economic and population decline. So there's definitely this movement towards moving towards the city. Uh, people see that there's jobs available. 
Um, but just to go back on like the cost of living side of things, you move more people into city as well. Uh, just scarcity plays a role, and so uh, like the cost of certain commodities like gasoline is much more expensive. Even simple things like milk or uh, other food items are much more expensive, and th- those are often used as variables when calculating like the cost of living in a city. Uh, but also, so whenever you look at like the economic consequences of this. Uh, I mean, I touched a little bit on this in environmental, but as you move people from agrarian uh, sector jobs, I guess, from like rural areas into the city, there's less people that are available uh, to work on farms. So farm farming or ranching becomes more industrialized, large scale, uh, and so maybe a little bit more efficient just because larger companies are able to produce more than like a smaller farmer would. And, but so you see an increase in the amount of like tech, tech jobs, uh, people that are going into cities are working on finance, marketing. So that's pretty much what we have for like the economic consequences. So it's a bit uh, of a, a mixed picture um, for economic purposes, right? You see a lot of growth in the cities, but some of that is coming out at the uh, consequence of more rural areas seeing more decline. So you see opportunities in cities, but it's having negative uh negative growth and negative uh, both population and economic growth in rural areas. And then even within the cities with the growth because of the limits of space, rising costs in those areas sometimes uh, comes with their, with their own challenges like homelessness um, or things like that. Okay. So Michael definitely touched on a little bit. Um, as cities grow, it'll be hard for local governments to rise to meet the needs of the growing population. Um, local governments will have to find a way to invest in their local economy to create more jobs, um, definitely invest in their health care, family planning, and education. And definitely without these things, the city is at a high risk for poverty and instability. Um, the cycle of poverty begins when um, jobs become scarce, people struggle to meet the rising cost of living, um, slums and ghettos can begin to develop, and then education and so- social services social services become strained. Um, A study we examined um, definitely showed these problems. Um, So there was a study that um, examined the most dangerous cities in California. Every city in the top 10 had a poverty rate of 14.5% or higher. And then San Bernardino, which was rated the most dangerous city, actually had a poverty rate of 30.6%. And they examined other factors also. Some of the other uh, factors examined in the study were education, um, unemployment, and police presence. Um, the safest cities, um, the top 10 safest cities, had uh, 91% of the highest graduates of high school graduates, uh, while San Bernardino only had 64% of high school graduates in their city. Um, and this just highlights the importance of creating a plan for the education and economy to be able to hold more people before um, it turns for the worse. Um, and I noticed that even with when there is economic growth and maybe even a plan, um, there's even still winners and losers a part of sustainable uh, development because as more high income and highly educated whites move in, that pushes out um, some of the poor residents that used to live there. And with a lot of this, it shows that the poor cities um, are now more affected with power plants and chemical um factories being located near their homes and this definitely just brings in a bunch of health problems and asks the question of 
who gets to benefit from uh, sustainable development and more eco-friendly techniques being used because uh, right now it's more of just the they're highly the high income people and highly educated benefiting from the development so yeah i mean so it's again here with the economics piece this is a bit of a bag right there are some some good social resources co that come to cities that manage the growth well and then in places where the the growth is not managed particularly well and places that have high rates of poverty in particular you have all of these kind of negative social outcomes associated with them so which which i think just highlights the importance of getting this right so how does the environmental piece come into this you know you look at the economic and the social um, and what role does the environment play in this? Uh, so in urban areas, I mean, the residents, they consume energy, water, food uh, at a much different rate than people in rural areas, and they manage the land a lot differently as well. Uh, so uh, experts from, like, the World Bank have are concerned that the current trends in urbanization could threaten global food, global food supplies. Uh, especially at a time where food production isn't able to meet as much of the population growth. And also at the same time, other countries around the world, if you look outside the United States, are struggling with water. And so being able to manage population growth in large cities and getting water and food to them at an accessible rate. Um, now, there are a lot of environmental consequences of urbanization. So urban areas radiate about 15 to 30% less heat back into the atmosphere than rural areas and so this creates what's called a heat a heat island inside of the city where it just all gets trapped inside of these large tall buildings uh, so heat islands trap over uh, more air pollutants uh, make it more cloudy and foggy on certain days and they can have negative impacts on weather patterns and make cities warmer uh, and this has consequences for people on the other side of the city uh, it messes with the jet stream and they can change the weather for people um, in other parts of the country. So areas downwind from large industrial cities often see more rain, air pollution, and days with severe thunderstorms, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then so there's increased urbanization also disrupts natural watersheds and makes flooding less predictable because cities expand and require more water for the residents, but don't have historical data to look back on to predict what's going to happen when it floods. So uh, that's like a severe consequence that I think a lot of the larger cities are facing, especially uh, on the coast. And so one thing that I think not a lot of people really uh, focus on is that resiliency in your community, infrastructure-wise, is a big part of sustainability. And so we can see that, I mean, there's been an increase in extreme weather disasters, like uh, Hurricane Harvey, for example. And so they came, uh, the hurricane comes in and destroys much of the city or like Hurricane Katrina comes and destroys much of New Orleans. And then these communities aren't being able, or aren't built to be able to withstand these severe storms. And so a lot of the debris just gets washed back out into the ocean or uh, chemicals get discharged into soil, creating toxic levels of, uh, for like growing food or if for groundwater or surface water. And so there's just a lot of things that people don't necessarily realize that come from making cities more, resilient to natural disasters. Yeah, so um, I think that nicely captures, you know, economic and social and environmental concerns with um, with urban growth. But these things don't, they also don't seem 
you know, out of the range of things that we might have some solutions for. And so why is it that, you know, these problems persist um, given, you know, we have some historical uh, legislation that helped um, deal with environmental consequences of cities. And it seems like we have some frameworks for improving this. So why is it something we're still struggling with? Is it just the sheer pace? Is it, does it have something to do with cultural attitudes? Uh, why are we struggling? Why is this remaining uh, such a challenge? I would definitely say cultural attitude does have a part into this. Um, as we all know, Americans are can be very adamant about their like anti-tax, anti-government um, attitude. They believe regulations, especially environmental regulations, can be negative for the economy. And I feel like a lot of this has possibly stopped large, effective legislation from being passed. Um, and also, as we talked about the social, environmental, and economic uh, consequences, it's just a very complicated process to kind of ensure a green, profitable, and fair city. Because as a, like we stated, as a city might become um, more eco-friendly, this pushes out poor residents. So we haven't found exactly found the perfect balance of ensuring that everyone gets to benefit um, from this development. And another reason we said um, is that America really needs to invest in their infrastructure. A study found that at least $150 billion more a year uh, needs to be put towards infrastructure. But it seems like a lot of politicians kind of just keep putting it off for the next generation to deal with. Um, so definitely this is a thing that we need even as citizens need to make sure politicians um, respond to you like right away. Yeah, I think this um, highlights some classic things we know from economics and psychology about uh, people uh, people heavily discounting the future and not putting as much weight on the impacts that our behaviors are going to have on future generations and kind of passing the buck because to to solve these things, as you mentioned, we're talking we're not talking about you know, small amounts of money. We're talking about over a hundred billion dollars in required investment um, to just kind of attack what needs to be done with current infrastructure. Um, so that's sort of a, a pretty well-known phenomenon, I think, in economics and in policy. Um, and it's a it's a challenge that we we keep having to deal with things that have costs now that will have benefits in the future. Um, and so I think that's something that we, we continue to struggle with. So we've mentioned, we've hit around this a little bit, um, but what specific groups did your team identify as the stakeholders that really have vested interest in this issue? Um, so obviously, uh, the two primary stakeholders are, um, the national government and the local government, because the national government does a lot of the funding of, oh, here's money to make a more sustainable environment for your community. And that's given to the local governments to actually enact and create these plans. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about how some of these plans have been enacted in different cities. Um, and then society as a whole, because this is an issue that affects, affects everyone in the United States. Um, and it's something that everyone has to be worried about and concerned over. So... What uh, do we have any examples of places doing this well or places doing this poorly? Um, some I know in your project you cover some a couple of city sustainability projects. So what are cities doing that is working 
or is not working uh, in terms of helping deal with urban growth and its overall uh, impact and how we can help that growth be sustainable. So I know in your report you talk um, a good bit about, you give, give us a couple of projects that have been done at the city level as examples for what sustainability practices at the city level might look like, maybe some good, some bad. So in your report, what uh, walk me through the, I know you mentioned one large case, uh, New York City, and then one that's more closer to home in here in College Station. So walk me through those. So the, the very first one that we kind of went in and decided to look at was New York City. The reason being is that New York City uh, is one of the largest cities in the United States with currently 8,336,000 residents. And that's not even including the individuals that commute daily for work and the nearly 63 million tourists that visit New York City each year. So what we decided to do is we decided to go in and look at the largest city possible so that we could get a nice kind of example of what uh, one of these large cities who's been around for hundreds of years is uh, doing to actually improve their city and hopefully make it more sustainable moving into the future. So they're, uh, the biggest concept that they currently have going is that the City Mayor's Association up in New York City has actually come up with a four-step plan to actually combat their growing urban population. The first part of this urban uh, population growth uh, program or plan decided to uh, go with their first vision, which would be growth. They wanted to. They decided to go in and look at the effects that growth on the city is actually going to have, as far as like infrastructure and whether or not they're actually going to have enough housing, city buildings, transportation, city streets, things of that nature. Because they wanted to be able to accommodate the individuals as they continue to grow and increase and improve their city streets, improve the way of life and the quality of life for individuals. That leads me into the second vision, which is actually actually equity, equity of the citizens. That being said, they're looking to improve the quality of life of those individuals because as more and more citizens move into the city, they want to make sure that the um, city continues to actually meet the needs of each and every person, being whether that be food, whether that be having enough housing available for the residents that are moving into the city, and making sure that people aren't constantly sitting in traffic and things of that nature that tend to make them less happy overall. And then the third vision... Uh, for their urban sustainability plan is just sustainability as a whole. And when we refer to sustainability, we're talking more along the lines of like urban sustainability uh, regarding like greenhouse emissions and gases and things like that that affect people's overall quality of life. So as you can kind of tell, there's kind of a trend going here where each and every one of these kind of works together and ties in really well together. So when we're talking about sustainability, they want to lower the fossil fuel consumption citywide as well as the greenhouse gas emissions and the way they're looking to do this is by putting in bus city city buses as well as more fuel economic taxi cabs and having mandates to ensure that the vehicles that actually do uh, drive around and move around that city actually are doing it in an environmentally friendly way they're also looking to improve uh, building emission standards by improving uh, efficiency on air conditioning and heating for majority of the buildings within a larger city and then the final vision that we actually came to in this particular plan was resiliency. And when we're referring to resiliency, New York City, as you know, is uh, basically on an island. They're in Manhattan Island. And mm -hmm. so therefore, they're, they're, uh, they end up taking on a lot of different uh, natural disasters, whether that be snow, it could be potential hurricane, it could be blizzards, it could be flooding, anything along those lines. Uh, and therefore, they wanted to improve the resiliency of this city um, because 
the infrastructure currently is not up to par for what they want to see it moving down the line 10, 15, 20 years. So therefore they're looking to improve their overall infrastructure, that being the bridges, uh, that being uh, things that regard like uh, steel structures that may potentially rust because they use a lot of salt in the winter times to actually combat the snow. So they're trying to combat the reverse uh, effects that the city infrastructure might actually face while they're trying to handle some of these natural disasters as well as the natural disasters themselves. So that's their four-part plan, and they're looking to kind of implement that uh, moving forward by the year 2030 or the year 2040 to make sure that by the time that they actually reach the uh, those years that they will have this plan in place and overall improving the city of New York. So they've kind of put in place a pretty, I mean, not super long-term, but they started trying to plan 15, 20 years out so that as the city continues to grow and, uh, you know, have different uh, challenges related to climate change, that they'll be prepared rather than being reactive when it's too late, right? Absolutely. They'd rather be, they'd rather be uh, proactive rather than reactive looking into the future. Sounds like a reasonable approach. So how is our local city of College Station handling, uh, handling these concerns? Us as students, we all drive around College Station and we can see the visible issues that are occurring because of uh, how fast College Station is currently growing and just how the city is having a really hard time keeping up with that growth. Um, not many people know that uh, the Bryan College Station metropolitan area is actually the 15th fastest growing metropolitan area in the United States. Um, and there's a few reasons that they say the area is growing that the mayor has come out with. Um, and that is, we were ranked best place to raise a family, uh, one of the 10 best college towns, um, best place to retire. Uh, and we're also a tier one research university, which brings a lot of international families and students into the area to contribute to that growth. Um, there's also a current oil boom going on and lots of jobs um, in the surrounding areas. And so we're kind of a more suburban area where people can raise a family um, and commute into larger cities to work. The city has uh, created a comprehensive plan. Uh, this kind of ties into what you were saying earlier about the push out of uh, poor families because uh, College Station actually has a comprehensive plan to deal with growth, but um, I tried to find one for Brian and there wasn't one um, on the Brian City website, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so College Station's plan is to create and revitalize parks, um, increase community service programs, and improve the current infrastructure, obviously. Um, and this is just to create a better community for the current citizens, but also attract future citizens to the area. Um, there are currently a lot of sustainability projects going on um, to save water, reduce waste, and create volunteer opportunities. So we have the uh, Making Brazos Beautiful project, um, and that is like brings in the university a lot. And you can also uh, do the, what is it, Rent-A-Street, um, where you can, you pick up and clean up an area of the street. And I know a lot of uh, sororities and fraternities do that in the area to get students involved um, in keeping College Station clean. Um, so that's kind of what College Station is doing at the time being. It's not as grand a scale as New York, but we are a 
smaller metropolitan area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in College Station's defense, it is much smaller than uh, New York City. Um, but it's good to see that there are kind of systematic attempts within the city, being that it's a top 20, it's number 15 growing metropolitan area in the country. And so it's, you know, again, to what we were talking about with New York City being a little bit more proactive with response to the growth rather than waiting until it gets so cumbersome um, that everything has to be reactive. Oh, I would just say that College Station kind of missed the ball on this one. So they're having to react, but they are doing their best to be proactive for future growth. So the growth is maybe uh, had already been coming in this particular case, and we're playing a little bit of catch-up instead. So we are having to deal with some reactive uh, policies. All right, so given these two cases and your research and thinking about economic and social and environmental impacts related to uh, urban growth, what kind of recommendations did your group come up with? So for um, a recommendation we found solely for controlling overall population actually focuses on sex education. Um, U.S. actually ranked, the US, United States actually ranks first for teenage pregnancy in sexually transmitted diseases um, among developed countries. Oh, what a and, nice title. <laughs> and the United States has mostly funded and encouraged abstinence-only programs, but many studies have found this is actually not as effective. And unfortunately, households with lower incomes actually have higher birth rates, and some of the one of the factors that contributes to this is that states are able to decide if they want to provide sex, sex education in their school and um, what their program focuses on. So our recommendation um, is that there's actually, there should be federal legislation to centralize uh, sex education and to fund comprehensive sex education programs that are proven to be more effective to re uh, reduce birth rates. And many studies find that lowering birth rates actually helps um, lower poverty levels. So definitely cities that are having trouble with high um, poverty levels providing more sex education that is actually deemed effective to reduce birth rates would definitely help with that um, with those problems. Yeah, so another recommendation this would be um, for cities to invest in technology that can reduce or prevent pollution. Um, some of the most helpful developments here have been automobile and fuel related. Uh, one particular development that I listed uh, is GTL or the gas to liquid uh, fuel conversion. This is from Shell. It's a synthetic fuel and it's a replacement for diesel. Um, it's derived from natural gas and it actually requires no engine modification. And it's been shown to reduce nitrous oxide and particulate matter emissions um, up to 38% depending on how new the vehicle is. Um, the alternative that's been developed is DME or dimethyl ether. Uh, and this can reduce nitrous oxide up 25% and almost virtually eliminate uh, particulate matter uh, emissions. Um, this is this in particular is being looked into by major automobile companies like Ford. Um, a particularly yeah, a particularly relevant solution with great potential use is electric vehicles. Obviously, um, now electric vehicles uh, they only comprised one point one five percent of automobile sales in two thousand seventeen, but um, that's a 26% from the previous year. So this is a trend that will probably continue to grow. And places like California are actually leading the way here in electric vehicles. 
Um, they represented nearly 5% of sales in the beginning of 2017, and the state government there is actually also on board with it. Um, Governor Jerry Brown signed an executive order uh, with the goal of introducing 5 million additional electric vehicles to the roads uh, by the year 2030. Um, very ambitious. Um, he's also already incentivized this through electric vehicle rebate programs. Um, another thing, uh, autonomous vehicles may actually help contribute to reducing emissions by anywhere from 15 to 40 percent. Um, this is just because, uh, you know, they're autonomous. Uh, human, the way humans drive, you know, it's going to be less stopping and such like that, uh, less time on the road. Um, this will obviously be relevant in the years to come as well. Um, one more technology that we looked at is actually smog eating buildings and materials. I found this really interesting. It's essentially uh, photocatalytic concrete, meaning it reacts with sunlight. Um, it's mixed with titanium dioxide, and it breaks down nitric and nitrogen oxides under sunlight. Um, this can be used in roofing and um, sidewalks and highway construction, just as an example. Um, this is also called Tiochem, and it's already been implemented in areas like Italy and Mexico. So. Yeah, I think the, uh, the growth of electric vehicles is one that, you know, you mentioned is continuing to grow, and we're even seeing some ripple effects in the broader automobile market. Just, uh, I think it was earlier this week, GM announced that they're discontinuing a lot of their different uh, different models in, in exchange for focusing on electric vehicles. So I think it is true that, the, that this is a kind of a function of the marketplace that's going to continue to grow. So hopefully that does lead to lower uh, lower overall emissions. So you also talk about uh, workforce training programs. So tell me about those. So something recently that we kind of discovered that was actually before we actually started looking into our project was when Mattress Mac, other uh, or Jim McInvall, the widest known as Mattress Mac, came to visit us and kind of did a, a small like sort of like TED Talk for the Bush School. Actually, he came and spoke to us and was talking about his resiliency and things like that during Hurricane Harvey. And one of the biggest things he said was to remain relevant in the community. So one of the ways that he wanted to actually remain relevant in his community and improve urban sustainability as well as improve the quality of life of the individuals actually around him was to take a portion of his store and actually turn it into workforce training programs. That being teaching people uh, <coughs> um, actual skills that they can use to improve their community around them, that being welding and that be uh, plumbing and things like that that are blue-collar jobs that would necessarily improve the in level of income for these lower socioeconomic areas. Excellent. Yeah, I I, um, I missed uh, when Mattress Mac came to uh, the Bush School, unfortunately, but I heard wonderful things about the talk that he gave. Um, so I'm glad that it made it into your report and it was something that you found, uh, found useful as an example of retraining programs because I think this is going to be a, a piece of what we, what we need with a changing economy. So that's a, that's a great one. Thank you. Um, and you have something in here about the LEED standards. So tell me about the LEED standards as well. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And so it's basically a plaque of approval saying that this building meets certain standards put out by LEED based on energy consumption and emission standards. Um, and so LEED has put out on their website that their buildings consume a quarter of the energy and produce 38% less emissions um, than your standard building. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about maybe the government having tax uh, incentives of some sort to encourage building 
brands and uh, businesses to get these uh, certifications just so that we are reducing emissions um, in urban areas. Excellent. Well, I really like how you've tackled a bunch of different angles of this. Because um, in your report, your report does a really nice job highlighting that this isn't just a, something with one silver bullet solution, that it really needs creativity. It really needs a lot of different types of solutions, solutions at the local level that are crafted to particular cities, funding at the federal level. And so I like how you've really cast a wide net on the different strategies for addressing, um, addressing these issues of urban population growth. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on in your report that you think would be useful to leave the listeners with? I think the only thing left is that this is just a large problem that there's going to be growing pains. But, I mean, ultimately, this is going to be something that's going to take government and private sector collaboration on achieving. It is extremely expensive. A lot of it's going to have to be around changing what consumers want. Um so that they're buying things that are more environmentally and socially uh, beneficial. Yeah, I mean, this does seem to be one of the uh, biggest challenges to modern society as we continue to urbanize and continue to uh, adopt newer technologies and then use more energy. We're going to have to find ways to um, offset some of the negative externalities that come with that. And I don't, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think this problem is going away. I think it's something that's here to stay. So. I'm really glad that your group tackled this and gave some pretty straightforward recommendations that different communities can consider um, to, to you know, combat rapid population growth because I don't think this is something that's, um, that's going away. So, well, team, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me. Thanks so much for the work you did on this report, and uh, I think it's very informative and hopefully uh, can share some some potential strategies for communities to use to deal with these negative externalities. So thank you so much.